You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventures from throughout history. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. Welcome to the Age of Napoleon. Episode 11, Cadet Pione. Thanks for joining me. When we left off last time, Napoleon had just arrived at Brienne, an elite military school in northeastern France. The purpose of schools like Brienne was preparing sons of the aristocracy for the military academies that would train the next generation of army and naval officers. Warfare was changing during this period. In particular, the expectations placed on officers were shifting away from the gentlemanly, almost chivalric ideal of earlier eras and towards something a bit more professional and scientific. Institutions like Brienne were on the forefront of that change. The curriculum was heavy on subjects like mathematics, engineering, geography, military history, and foreign languages. Molding the officers of the future was becoming more about imparting professional skills on the young cadets than polishing them into fine gentlemen. The cadets were very young, typically between 9 and 16, but daily life at Brienne was incredibly demanding. This being a government institution, we actually have decent records as to the curriculum, schedule, and policies. To give full credit where it's due, a lot of this was dug up by a scholar named Guy Godlevsky in an article called La Vie Quotidienne de Napoléon à Brienne, which was published in 1972. If you find this stuff interesting and can read French, I highly recommend it. Anyway, back to Brienne. Cadets would be enrolled for five or six years, during which time they were barred from leaving the school, except in cases of emergency. There was a six-week summer vacation, but it's kind of cruel to even call it a vacation. No one was allowed to go home, and they still had to attend class in the mornings. Cadets got Thursdays off, and there were no classes on Sunday, only field trips and high mass. Here's what a typical school day looked like. Cadets woke up at six, got dressed, then attended mass, and received, as the authorities put it, moral instruction. This was a government school, but like almost all educational institutions in the kingdom, it was administered by the Catholic Church, the Franciscan Order of Monks in this case. Brienne had a very Catholic character. A lot of the instructors were monks, the students attended mass six days a week, and they were required to take confession at least once every two months. After their spiritual needs were met, the cadets were finally dismissed for breakfast. Classes started at 8, with two hours of basic instruction. 
This would be core academic subjects like math, Latin, history, rhetoric, or natural philosophy, what we would call science. Math was Napoleon's best subject, which would go on to dictate much of his future. His worst subject was Latin, maybe ironic given his affinity for the Romans, but the deficiency doesn't seem to have bothered him. From 10 to 12, the cadets learned more specialized subjects, military engineering and geography. Napoleon excelled in geography as well. When he was a young officer, his superiors were amazed that he knew the distances between major cities and landmarks by heart, and could come up with plausible estimates of how long it would take for an army to travel between them, right off the top of his head. At noon, classes broke for lunch and an hour of recreation, preceded by more prayers, of course. Then it was more core subjects from 2 to 4. The 4 to 6 p.m. block included modern languages, German and English, as well as what we might call electives. There were classes in fencing, dance, and music. Clearly, that older idea that officers must be refined gentlemen hadn't totally died out. There was a supervised study hall from 6 to 8, then dinner, and more recreation from 8 to 10. At 10 p.m., the cadets were locked into their rooms for the night. To add it all up, that's eight hours a day of classes, plus over an hour of religion, and two hours of study hall. Over 11 hours total of sitting quietly in a cold room in an uncomfortable uniform trying to learn. This would be a demanding, highly regimented lifestyle at any age. It must have been especially tough for preteen boys. Napoleon was only nine when he arrived at Brienne, but he already had dreams of martial glory. You might think he would flourish at a place where he would receive the training to realize those dreams, but that's not what happened. All the evidence we have suggests Napoleon's early years at Brienne were unhappy ones, and not just because of the strict curriculum. You will not be surprised to hear that the social atmosphere at an elite all-boys military boarding school was often quite cruel. Napoleon was a foreigner with a funny accent who came from a poor, obscure family. He was also smart, proud, and assertive. Exactly the type of kid bullies love taking down a peg. He soon became one of his fellow cadets' favorite targets for jokes and pranks. They called him Pione, a play on the name Napoleon, meaning straw in the nose, a reference to his accent. Napoleon responded by withdrawing socially. In his early years at Brienne, he spent most of his free time alone, reading or writing. He kept up with his classics, but also branched out into Enlightenment thought. Voltaire, Rousseau, Diderot. The Abbé Renal became one of Napoleon's favorites. He had good taste. I think Renal is one of the most underrated thinkers of the age. I talked about him in the bonus episode on race and capitalism. He's the guy who wrote The History of the Two Indies, that book that criticized slavery and colonialism. As Napoleon himself put it, he became an enthusiastic disciple of Raynal. A sad irony given how he would choose to deal with the slave rebellion in Haiti years later. He actually got to meet Raynal when he was passing through Brienne. Later, Napoleon would send him fan letters and samples of his own writing. Alongside his martial fantasies, Napoleon sometimes dreamed of becoming a famous man of letters, and clearly he viewed Raynal as the ideal role model in this field. Despite being so scholarly in his free time, Napoleon's academic performance during his early years at Brienne was only okay. 
Given his talents and later academic success, it's clear he was underachieving. Taken together with his moodiness and social isolation, I think it's safe to say he was a bit depressed. He described his life as, quote, a burden, because there is no pleasure and nothing but pain, end quote. Depression isn't unusual for a child this age, especially one so far from home thrust into an unforgiving environment. But of course, that's not how people in this era thought about depression. Even if they had, the young Napoleon might have preferred another explanation. From an early age, he had a tendency towards grandiosity. As he got older, he would learn to keep this in check, or at the very least justify it through his achievements, but in his younger days, it sometimes verged on the ridiculous. Napoleon channeled his unhappiness at Brienne into his feelings of Corsican patriotism. This did make sense to a degree, his foreignness was the source of a lot of the teasing, but I think it also appealed to that grandiose side. It was a lot more romantic for him to think of himself as persecuted by the conquerors of his homeland than simply as a schoolboy being teased by other schoolboys. In his letters, Napoleon compared himself to the hostages the ancient Romans took from conquered peoples to ensure good behavior. He wrote that he was unhappy because, quote, The men with whom I live, and probably will always have to live, have customs that are as far from mine as the light of the moon differs from the light of the sun. End quote. And so, despite his bullies and to explain away his depression, Napoleon asserted his Corsican identity as loudly as he could. He idolized Pasquale Paoli even more fervently. He referred to his tormentors as you damned French and wrote stories about Corsican heroes violently avenging their country on its occupiers. The reality was a bit more complicated. The chief of the occupiers on Corsica was the Comte de Marbeuf, devoted friend and patron of the Bonaparte family, a man Napoleon liked and admired, and whose good graces enabled him to attend Brienne. Napoleon wrote that he despised the cowards and traitors who made their peace with the French rather than standing with Pauli, which sounds an awful lot like his own father. Granted, Carlo Bonaparte had fought the good fight, but he caved in the end, didn't he? You sometimes read that Napoleon hated his father for turning his back on Pauli, but there's actually no solid evidence that he lumped Carlo in with those despised traitors. Maybe he rationalized Carlo's capitulation to France, or maybe he just lived with the cognitive dissonance. Maybe on some level he understood that the dream of little Corsica resisting a world power was nothing more than a comforting romantic fantasy. Whether he knew it or not, Napoleon was becoming less Corsican by the day. These were the formative years of his life, and he was spending them in France. The homeland he clung to in his thoughts was often more of an idealized abstraction than a real place. Napoleon wrote letters to his father asking him to send reading material about Corsica. I think on some level he could feel his connection to the island fading. He was fundamentally a reader during this period. Much of his life was lived vicariously on the page, and he thought with the right books he could repair and maintain that connection to home. Despite his preoccupation with Corsica and colorful denouncements of the French, Napoleon actually did make a few friends during his time at Brienne. The most important of these childhood friends was a boy named Louis-Antoine Fauvelet de Bourrienne. They had a lot in common. Like Napoleon, Bourrienne was a bookish scholarship kid who was often left out of the elitist social scene. The two would be associated for decades. 
After graduating from Brienne, they reconnected in Paris as young men. As Napoleon's star rose, Bourienne served as his private secretary. Bourienne was one of the first people outside of Napoleon's family to recognize his true potential. As early as 1795, he began saving his correspondence with Napoleon and taking notes on his actions and statements. Bourienne imagined one day Napoleon's legacy might be important enough that all these little things would be valuable to posterity. And, of course, as a corollary, he imagined he might secure his own legacy by being the man to record them. He was right on both counts, but maybe not in the way he envisioned. He did eventually publish his Memories of Napoleon, appropriately titled Memoirs of Napoleon Bonaparte. It's a huge work. It was released in several volumes between 1829 and 1831. The memoirs, as they're often referred to, were the standard biography of Napoleon for the majority of the time between his death and today. When the Western world went through its period of Napoleon mania in the mid-19th century, this was the go-to reference for information about the emperor's life and character. Not only did people read the memoirs, a lot of the other popular works about Napoleon were sourced almost entirely from Bourienne. His view of Napoleon became a kind of orthodoxy. Abel Gans, an early film director, created the first-ever movie version of Napoleon's life in 1927. The film was a massive hit and had a huge influence on the public perception of Napoleon in the 20th century. And, just like his 19th century predecessors, Gans took most of his story from the memoirs. Gans's Napoleon set the standard for film portrayals of the emperor, indirectly carrying Bourienne's influence into a new medium. So the memoirs have colored almost every subsequent portrayal of Napoleon. It's easy to see why they were so influential. It's very rare to have an exhaustive account of such a massive historical figure written by someone who knew him intimately from an early age. For decades after the memoirs were published, they were largely accepted without question. But there's a reason modern historians tend to take these types of first-hand accounts with a grain of salt. As the academic discipline of history became more rigorous and scholars began to read the memoirs more critically and analytically, Bourienne came to be viewed as unreliable. His general assessment of Napoleon's personality and the main points of the narrative are mostly fine, but he also peppered the memoirs with embellishments and literary flourishes possibly even a few outright fabrications. By reading between the lines, it becomes clear Bourienne was writing with a specific personal agenda. In 1802, he and Napoleon had an acrimonious falling out. While serving as Napoleon's secretary, Bourienne got up to his eyeballs in all kinds of dodgy financial schemes. This type of behavior violated about a dozen of Napoleon's most closely held principles, and he blew a gasket when he found out. Bourienne was fired, and Napoleon never spoke or wrote to him again. Napoleon's anger filtered out into the wider circle of Bonapartist officers, politicians, and intellectuals. Bourienne became persona non grata among all his former comrades, totally disgraced. So the memoirs weren't written purely for posterity. Clearly, Bourienne had an eye towards rehabilitating himself, telling his side of the story writing himself back into this world from which he'd been excluded. So he exaggerates his closeness with Napoleon and his own importance, and he depicts Napoleon as prone to making rash decisions. You know, like, maybe, for instance, 
dismissing and ostracizing a close, loyal friend due to a slight misunderstanding over some totally legitimate business deals. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. I thought it was important to introduce Borean because he's going to appear in our story down the line, and because he's one of our only first-hand sources for the early part of Napoleon's life. He clearly had an agenda and a dishonest streak, but there just aren't many sources for Napoleon's life at Brienne, so we're forced to kind of read between the lines, cross-reference everything with more reliable accounts, and just try to weigh what makes sense and what doesn't. But, for example, some scholars think the whole thing was basically made up, that Bourrienne and Napoleon were never really friends. Bourrienne was essentially just a con man who exploited the fact that he'd happened to go to the same school with Napoleon to get a job, then exploited that job to try to get rich, and when that failed, tried to make money off of a juicy tell-all book. Not totally implausible. So, a bit of a digression. But I've always thought that was an interesting side story, and I wanted you guys to be aware of the fact that there are other interpretations of this stuff out there, and for good reason. Anyway, back at Brienne, as the years went by, Napoleon slowly, awkwardly settled in and found his place. He became more sociable and more devoted to his studies. He continued to find sanctuary in books and writing when the cruel social atmosphere or demanding curriculum became overwhelming. The bullying and pioneer cracks became less frequent once he became an upperclassman and grew bigger and stronger. Physically, he was of average height, rail-thin but wiry, capable of physical strength when it was required. Of course, his mother, Letizia, worried he was starving. Napoleon wrote to his family often, and on a few occasions they were able to visit. The awkward, brooding cadet Pione was turning into someone recognizable as Napoleon Bonaparte. Still scholarly and introverted, but increasingly confident and capable, even occasionally charming in his own eccentric way. He was growing up just in time. 1784 would be a pivotal year in Napoleon's life. He was only 14 going on 15, but all of a sudden, adulthood came knocking. This was his last year at Brienne. Like all the graduating cadets, he studied feverishly for the exit exams in September. Those exams were everything. The students were only teenagers, but their paths in life would be largely dictated by the results. Napoleon also got a new companion. His younger brother Lucien began his freshman year at Brienne in 1784. This was unusual. Typically, the administration did not permit a family to receive more than one royal scholarship at a time. But seeing as how Napoleon and Lucien would only overlap for one year, Marbeuf and Carlo managed to negotiate an exception. 
There was a big age gap between Napoleon and Lucien. Six years. He had only been a toddler when Napoleon left home. In many ways, the precocious older brother was almost a man. Meanwhile, Lucien was just where Napoleon had been when he started at Brienne. Scared, immature, far from home, and trying to cope with a harsh new environment. So Napoleon took Lucien under his wing, and Lucien came to rely on his big brother. They almost became more like father and son than two brothers. Napoleon took pride in Lucien's achievements, and even kept track of his height to make sure he was growing. He also disciplined Lucien when he misbehaved, and pushed him in his studies, sometimes too hard according to some. Of course, Letizia had been strict, but my guess would be she was more judicious with her discipline than a 14-year-old army cadet. Napoleon loved his brother dearly, and he probably wanted to spare him some of the mistakes he'd made in his own early years at Brienne. And with his own graduation exams looming, I'm sure he felt he had to do everything he could to prepare Lucien for the ordeal in their short time together. I think this is the first time we get a good look at one of Napoleon's biggest flaws. He generally wanted what was best for people, but that often meant relentlessly pushing them towards whatever Napoleon decided best was, regardless of their own thoughts or feelings on the matter. It helped that he was often right, and he would eventually learn to be more subtle and diplomatic about it, but it was essentially a domineering instinct, and it never left him. The paternal element remained a part of Napoleon's relationship with Lucien for the rest of their lives. After the premature death of their father, it would soon replicate itself with the other siblings as well. As the older brother, Joseph would remain the exception in the immediate future, but before our story is done, Napoleon will be trying to run his life as well. Final exams came in September of 1784. A combination of the exam results, past academic performance, and recommendations from instructors would determine the cadet's placement in military academies, and that would determine what branch of military service they would be assigned to. So a lot hinged on these tests. In all likelihood, these teenage cadets were about to be assigned their future careers, the next four decades or so of their lives. The best students would be selected for the engineers or the artillery, regarded as the most intellectually challenging military professions. They would go on to study at the École Militaire, an elite, prestigious institution in Paris. The second tier of cadets would go to the naval academies. Navigation and naval warfare require a lot of the same basic skills and talents as engineering and artillery, but as is often the case in French history, the Navy played second fiddle to the Army, both in prestige and in the government's priorities. The middling students went into the infantry or cavalry. The cavalry regiments were generally more fashionable and therefore more desirable, but neither one was considered particularly brainy. The bottom 50% of students would be politely excused from future service as military officers. Napoleon's fervent hope was to be selected for the artillery, to study at the École Militaire. He passed his exams with flying colors, but it may not have been enough. The royal administrator of Brienne had Napoleon pegged as a future naval officer. His academic record had improved quite a bit from his unhappy underclassmen years, but taken altogether, it was merely good, not great. On paper, it looked like he was just short of his goal, destined to be a sailor. 
much to the horror of his mother, who had a phobia of drowning. It was the recommendations of his instructors that put Napoleon over the top. Even when his grades had been middling, he had impressed his teachers. Maybe they truly saw his talents. Or maybe he was already beginning to match his father's ability to gladhand and ingratiate. Whichever the case, Napoleon's teachers argued he had potential beyond what was evident in his academic record. Combined with the exam results, the recommendations put him over the top. 202 cadets graduated from France's military schools that year. Only 14 were invited to study artillery at the École Militaire. It was an incredibly selective honor, and Napoleon had made the cut. Just barely. He left for Paris almost immediately. But he may have been too distracted to really savor his success, because there was a third reason 1784 was the pivotal year in Napoleon's youth. That was also the year Carlo Bonaparte's health began the sharp, mysterious decline that would ultimately end in his death. By the time Napoleon was taking his exams, it was clear something was seriously wrong. Carlo was mostly bedridden. He had been sick for months and was only getting worse. The Bonapartes were forced to contemplate the unthinkable. This might be the end. By the end of 1784, Carlo was in agony, at death's door. He finally passed away in February of 1785. We have some letters written between the scattered members of the Bonaparte family during this period, and underneath all the 18th century repression, you can see the emotions you might expect from a tight-knit family facing the early death of the patriarch. Here's how Napoleon wrote about the loss in a letter to his great-uncle a few weeks later. Quote, It would be useless to express how deeply I feel the misfortune which has befallen us. We have lost in him a father, and God knows what a father, his tenderness, his affection. I dare even say, the country has lost in him an enlightened, zealous, and impartial citizen. And yet, heaven let him die. End quote. Joseph and Napoleon were the oldest sons by a considerable margin. Carlo's demise was devastating for the whole family, but it put a special burden on them. In a letter to his mother, Napoleon promised that he and Joseph would, quote, redouble in our attentiveness, and be happy if in our dutifulness we can make up in some degree for the inestimable loss of a cherished husband. End quote. They may have been teenagers, but they were now the men of the house. And that wasn't just some empty turn of phrase. In traditional, clan-dominated Corsica, there were now real expectations of them to look after their family's interests and take care of its dependents. The most daunting of these new responsibilities was financial. Carlo had been absolutely hopeless when it came to business. The family had debts, and the income from their various properties was barely enough to scrape by on. Napoleon and Joseph were still only students. It would probably be years before they could expect to earn any kind of serious income. Worse, they were both stuck far away from home, permanently until they finished their studies. All of these new family duties had to be undertaken via letter, or through intermediaries. If you're so inclined, you can read teenage Napoleon's extensive correspondence back to Corsica, trying to clean up the financial and legal mess left by Carlo's failed silkworm business. It's like an 18th century arrested development plotline. Napoleon had never seen Paris before he arrived at age 15 to attend the École Militaire. 
He would come to know the city intimately, but not during this day. By all accounts, he hardly ever left campus. This wasn't introversion. He had arrived with a singular purpose, to graduate as quickly as possible and receive his officer's commission, so he could begin earning a salary and supporting his family. Unlike Joseph's law school, the École Militaire didn't really have a formal curriculum. The cadets just stayed as long as was felt necessary to pass the graduation exam. And unlike the tests at Brienne, there wasn't much advantage to getting a good result. Everyone who passed this program received the same commission, second lieutenant of artillery. All Napoleon needed was enough knowledge and preparation to get through it. So he drilled down and focused entirely on the exam. He didn't make many friends at the École Militaire. The days of Pionet teasing were long gone, but he was too busy studying. Most students spent two or three years at the École Militaire before tackling the exams. Napoleon took his in 1785, less than a year after arriving. He passed. He was 42nd out of a class of 58. Not exactly a triumph, but it's pretty amazing that he actually did better than a quarter of the class, with less than half the preparation, and all while trying to settle Carlo's affairs in his free time. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Napoleon Bonaparte was officially commissioned as an officer in September of 1785, almost exactly one year since he sat for his final exams at Brienne. It was probably a relief to have achieved his goal and obtained a degree of financial stability, but I bet he was sorry to leave the École Militaire so soon. Even under all that pressure, he had excelled academically. Brienne had been kind of the bottom of the barrel of the royal military schools. The École Militaire was the opposite, the pinnacle of military education in France, one of the best schools of its kind anywhere in the world. The accommodations were luxurious, by military academy standards. Probably more importantly to Napoleon, the professors were the best the kingdom had to offer. For example, he learned math from Pierre-Simon de Laplace, one of the greatest minds in science and mathematics of the entire era. Any mathematicians in the audience might know him from Laplace's equation, which is still used today, or as the father of Bayesian probability. All of the math and science faculty were giants in their fields. Laplace just turned out to be the most influential. History and rhetoric were taught by eminent Enlightenment thinkers. The library had tactical manuals of every type of warfare and histories of every campaign France fought in the violent 18th century. 
It must have been hard for someone with Napoleon's interests and ambitions to keep his eye on the prize. This could have been a place where he really flourished, but circumstances forced him to race through it as quickly as possible. Second Lieutenant Bonaparte was assigned to the La Faire Artillery Regiment, headquartered in Valence, which is in southeastern France along the Rhone River, not far from the Alps. This was a real stroke of luck. Much of the French army was stationed near the border with Austria, in the northeast. In other words, where it was freezing cold and very far from Corsica. Instead, Napoleon would be in the warm south, only a few days' journey from the port of Marseille, the best place to catch a ship home. Valence was a pretty typical French provincial town, picturesque but sleepy. There was nothing there that appealed to Napoleon's grand, romantic sensibilities. He would soon find himself bored and frustrated. I think that's a good natural stopping point in the narrative. But before we knock off, I'd like to take a little time to reflect on Napoleon's upbringing. He was 16 when he arrived in Valence, but at this point in the story, he is functionally an adult. He had a career, drew a salary, and supported a family. He had adult responsibilities, those of an officer and those of a family patriarch, which he shared with Joseph. So, as we close the book on Napoleon the Child, I'd like to take a closer look at a few things from his youth that shaped the man he became. He was fundamentally a soldier his whole life. He led men in uniform from the age of 16 right up until Waterloo. Although a good bit of Napoleon trivia is that he technically left the military in 1799 and never re-enlisted. The army wasn't just a career for Napoleon, it shaped his whole outlook. Hopefully that's not surprising to you after listening to today's episode. He spent his whole youth being inculcated with martial values and being groomed for the life of an officer. From the age of nine, he never really left a military environment. Apart from his family, he only had two types of relationships with other people as a child, comrades and superiors. Napoleon was a soldier to the end, and looking at his youth, what else could he have been? When you read accounts of people who knew Napoleon, the comment you see most often is probably on his work ethic. He had seemingly boundless energy. He was informed on everything and involved in everything. Napoleon liked work. Even when he ruled France, he did a lot of his own research, even on obscure matters you might think would be beneath his notice. When he was out on campaign, he would dutifully read reports from Paris late into the night, right down to the minutes of committee meetings he missed. Bureaucrats and staff officers would produce esoteric reports under the assumption they'd never be read, then be shocked to receive a personal response from the emperor himself. People wondered how he maintained such a grueling pace. Well, remember his 12 hours a day schooling at Brienne? And imagine what his life must have been like at the École Militaire, trying to cram three years' worth of learning into one. He wasn't born with that insatiable work ethic. It was drilled into him, both by his strict education and by unfortunate personal circumstances. Another thing I want to emphasize is his love of books and learning. As the narrative moves on, we're going to have a lot more exciting topics to discuss than what books he was reading. But that doesn't mean he stopped, far from it. To take one example I like, once he came to power, Napoleon ordered a kind of mobile mini-library built full of tiny, small-print editions of his favorite books, so he could bring them all on campaign with him. 
Originally, this portable library was just a box, not much bigger than the one he used for his shaving and washing supplies. But Napoleon was never happy with it. It kept getting bigger. By the end of his career, it ballooned to thousands of volumes contained in six huge chests, custom-built to unfold into full-size bookshelves. I think that little anecdote tells you a lot about him. He didn't travel with many luxuries. The personal tent he took on campaign was small. He was content to wear a simple colonel's uniform when he was out in the field. Other monarchs of this era campaigned in style, packing up half their court to go to war, sleeping in tents that looked like the interior of a palace. Not Napoleon. His only extravagance was that truly absurd book collection. The sheer volume of Napoleon's reading is notable, but he also had incredibly broad interests. History, political theory, and epic poetry remained his favorites, but he retained a childlike intellectual curiosity and open-mindedness throughout his life. He wanted to do the research and make up his own mind on every subject he encountered, from science to theology. As we'll see, Napoleon actually came close to pursuing a career as an intellectual. Fate took him another direction, but he always admired writers and thinkers, and sought their approval. So Napoleon's scholarly pursuits are going to fade into the background moving forward, but he'll always remain an intellectual at heart. There's one last thing I'd like to make a note of. How many women made an appearance in this episode? Unless I've miscounted, Letizia Bonaparte is the only one, and her presence was largely limited to fussing over Napoleon via letter. I think this is significant. Napoleon's love life was famously turbulent, to put it kindly. He was fundamentally a capable person who excelled at almost everything he undertook. But in this huge sphere of life, where most people find a huge proportion of their pleasures and happiness, he was completely incompetent. There are a million factors that might explain Napoleon's romantic trials, but this is one that I feel like people often miss. He grew up in all-male environments. He had hardly ever spoken to a woman who wasn't either a relative or a servant until he was in his late teens. And this goes beyond a basic lack of familiarity or experience with women. Everything in Napoleon's upbringing had been for one purpose, preparing him for the military, which at that time was considered an inherently and exclusively masculine world. Meanwhile, women of his class were discouraged from anything remotely martial, I think that must have created a kind of gulf between men like Napoleon and the women they were expected to pursue, almost like a cultural divide. Just something to keep in mind in the future when we discuss his love life, because otherwise it seems almost too bad to be true. Anyway, I should stop myself before this conclusion gets longer than the episode itself. Next time, we'll look at some slow, disappointing years of Napoleon's life. To spice it up a little bit, I'll also be talking about how the French army was changing. No one could see it yet, but the force that would beat the stuffing out of every country in Europe for over a decade straight was already coming into being, and fate would give Napoleon a front-row seat to that transformation. If it's been a while since you listened to Episode 6, The King's Army, you might want to give it a re-listen in the interim. We are going to pick up a lot of the threads that I introduced in that episode. That's all for now. Thanks for listening. 